The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 till 11. Professor Rosalind Gledo from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. And Rosalind is also the president of the Global Plant Council. Uh, thank you for being on the program, Professor. Good. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, when you've been watching COP26, how do you think it's been going and has it met your expectations in terms of what's been achieved or discussed? Um, well, I think my expectations are sadly probably a bit low anyway. Uh, you know, some part, and so I would like to see more progress. So it's not like we're going to get, you know, two degrees above pre-industrial levels of, of temperature and then just stop. It's just going to keep going up and up unless we do something. And um, I sometimes say, you know, people say the last IPCC report that came out a few months ago was a wake-up call. You know, that wasn't the wake-up call. The wake-up call was the first report in 1991. And mm. since then, we've been hitting the snooze button. Well, these summits and reports, as you say, they're not especially new. I mean, it was a very big issue in the 2000s, but yeah, even going back to that first assessment report back in the 1990s. So uh, in, in a way, I suppose, this COP26 is an extension on previous summits like Copenhagen and Paris and so on. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, they're definitely, it's, it's very important because the science has been clear for, you know, at least 50 years. And so, uh, really, it's a matter of for policymakers to to actually turn it into to um, into action. And the reason we need to do this is that that carbon dioxide not only increases global temperatures, it not only heats the planet, which affects the climate, but there's also direct effects on plants as well. So that's it, it, been an area of my own research: is that the direct effect of carbon dioxide on the process of photosynthesis and what that does to the nutritional value of plants so you know these these things are not um they're not going to go away and uh we really absolutely have to take action it's just um the, the consequences of not doing so are actually unthinkable so in terms of what a lot of the nations have discussed it. it appears that uh, Australia's taken this target of net zero by 2050. I know some countries are talking about more aggressive targets to bring us down to net zero, perhaps by 2030. What sort of target do you think we need to be aiming for in order to get the levels of carbon dioxide down to avoid these impacts to plants, which we'll talk about in just a moment? I think we have to do everything as fast as we can, because if you wait till 2050, that's like 25 years of of actually pretty high carbon dioxide emissions and therefore overall you're going to be releasing more. The sooner you can get it down, the better. So that that's always going to be the case. And, um, you know, we need to put in place um, policies that will encourage individuals, industry, companies um, uh, to to reduce these things. And if we don't do it, the rest of the world will do it for us and, and start giving us carbon taxes. So that's, you know, that's, I mean, I'm not a policy person, but that's my, my reading of it is that we really absolutely have to do everything and to rely on some kind of future technology like carbon capture and storage is, is ridiculous. I think we should do research on it for sure, but to actually do that effectively would need to create an industry, you know, bigger than the global oil industry is now and that's just not going to happen in 20 years. So can you talk to me about your research about the impacts of a higher concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere on plants? What have you discovered? 
So there's two ways that carbon dioxide affects plants. One is through the climate. Uh, so therefore, you're going to get changing bands of drought, wet, extra wet zones, sea level rises, and uh, also high temperatures cause pollen to become sterile. That's already becoming an issue with heat waves in, in parts of the world where you can't get grain set for your, for your crops because it's too hot and the pollen's sterile. But the main thing I've looked at is the direct effect on, on plants. And what happens is that plants are much more efficient at high carbon dioxide. In all those things, carbon dioxide is good for plants. Well, it is good for plants. It's just really rotten for the animals that eat them, including us. Because what happens is that because the plants are more efficient, they have less protein in them. And that's because the machinery that converts carbon dioxide into sugars that, that really drives the whole of life on Earth is made of protein, different enzymes. And that becomes more efficient at high CO2. And as a result, um, the plants uh, conserve them conserve their own energy and their own resources and they allocate their own internal um just like any industrial process you you reallocate according to to need and so it means the protein machinery is smaller so when a koala is eating leaves or a cow is eating grass the protein they're getting is mostly about half of that protein is in that photosynthetic machinery so if there's less of that machinery and we think there's probably by 2050, about 40% less of that machinery, that's a lot less protein, which means they have to eat a lot more leaves to get enough protein. I see. So how much of an impact has this had, say, over the last 10 or 20 years? Has there been a noticeable decline in protein? Yeah, it's actually already measurable, even at the amounts that we've had already. So most of the experiments we've done have been like, a, you know, well, what originally was 350 parts per million mm-hmm. when I started working on it. That's what the atmosphere was, but say 400 and say seven or 800 parts per million. And that's all that, you know, so that's exaggerating it. So hopefully we won't get to that. So hopefully we won't get to five, 600 parts per million carbon dioxide because at those levels, you really do have a huge impact. But even already, there's been a decrease in the, in the amount of protein. Um, it is hard to quantify but they're they're experimentally absolutely clear that that would be the case and i believe we have crossed 400 parts per million now haven't we yeah i think we're about 418 or something like that you know i read my first paper on high co2 on plants that was like 340 Mm. and when was that oh that would have been in the late 70s when i was a student I see. And can, yeah. you, can you talk to me about the actual process that you go through for that research? Do you sort of create greenhouses and replicate that concentration of CO2 or how do you do it? Yeah, no, it's really important to, to understand how these experiments have done. So there's a couple of different ways, but basically you can either do it in greenhouses where some of them are enriched with carbon dioxide and some of them aren't. Um, and then other ones, which it calls a free air carbon dioxide experiments, and they actually grow plants. There was one of these in Western Victoria for years, and there's a big one in Illinois in the US. I've worked at both of those. You grow plants like crops actually in the field under normal conditions, and you have these things like a hose, looks like a garden hose, and a big sort of circle, crop circle around it, and that blows carbon dioxide over the plants and enhances it. So then you've got a very natural environment. There was another big one in Arizona, so I've worked at all of those. And... Um, and so you, you do that and you grow the plants for various lengths of time. And, and so what was found with all of these studies is that the protein concentration of the leaves of uh, most plants, not things like maize and sorghum, because they have their own kind of 
system going on so they're not so affected. But all the others have less protein in the leaves. And as a result, you also have less protein in the grain. So wheat grains have less protein in them when you grow them at high CO2. And, you know, okay, I get my protein. I actually eat eat the odd animal. So, you know, I'm getting enough protein. But it does affect baking quality. And there's this fantastic photograph that some people from Western Victoria from the Ag Face site um, up near Horsham took of grain grown at, um, uh, you know, about 550 parts per million CO2 compared with today's area. And they baked bread out of it. And it's only risen about half as much because of the lack of protein. Hmm. So if you were to bake bread at that level of CO2 concentration, you'd have to add more yeast or something, would you? Uh, you'd have to add extra protein. And where are you going to get that from? You know, you'd have to add extra gluten and various other things. So, you know, it's really got, and then it's got less micronutrients in it and things like eucalypt leaves and, um, you know, natural plants, or in fact, many other crop plants too, they have more of the natural toxins that plants make. So the plants kind of readjust their resources, think, oh, well, you know, I don't have to make as much protein. Let's make some more toxins so I don't get eaten by, by pests. Um, but as a result, that means that it's less nutritious. And, um, you know, as I've said, you know, by 2050, koala, uh, koalas may not be able to survive on eucalypts anymore because there will not be enough protein and there'll be more toxins. I mean, this is not just, this is not kids' play. This is really big stuff. I don't know what the projected level of CO2 is going to be uh, in 2050, the level of CO2 concentration. Perhaps you have looked at that, but other things that we should be doing to prepare for uh, these impacts to the plants that you're talking about? I mean, the number one thing is to stop the problem at its source. You know, that's always the best. You know, if something's bleeding, you can, if someone's bleeding, you can give them a blood transfusion, but it's better to stop the bleeding, right? So that's the first thing. We just have to do every single thing we can, even though there's a lot of low-hanging fruit still for reducing carbon emissions. But in terms of other things, we absolutely need to be investing in uh, plant breeding, in um, agricultural technologies to improve accuracy of um, adding fertiliser and water to make our agricultural systems as absolutely as efficient as possible. They're already really efficient in Australia, but we could we can do even more so that we can get exactly the right amount and if we want to exploit the extra growth you get at high carbon dioxide you know you do actually have to add plenty of fertilizer to manage to actually get that to translate so um you know there's there's a lot of things that need to be happening there and there's a lot known that can be applied but we do need more research and i read that you've been looking into bushfire risks as well um are there an increased, is there an increased bushfire risk because uh, of the changing weather conditions and temperatures or does the actual composition of the plants, does that impact how they burn and affect bushfires as well? Yeah, I'm not really an expert in this area, uh, but what uh, my reading is that with uh, increased temperatures and decreased rainfall, you will uh, create environments where it's more likely to have fires. And certainly we have seen an increase in frequency in fire. And, and the issue with that is we then get decreased biodiversity. And and biodiverse, high biodiversity is actually good. It's good for humans as well as for the environment. It's always good to maintain as much biodiversity as possible. 
And uh, in terms of the Global Plant Council, can you tell me about what work they do? So a few things that we're doing uh, with the Global Plant Council, our main um, brief is to increase the awareness of the importance of plants and to encourage uh, research and education and investment in plants and plant science. And that can be biodiversity, but our focus primarily is on trying to address issues to do with food security. How can we maximise the amount of food that we produce in the world without um, taking up more and more land and more and more resources? And that's a challenge that's, of course, ongoing. How do you feel about the future if you discount climate change, some of the other factors like population and such? How do you think we're going from a food security point of view? Um, I think we can. I think we can do this. You know, I mean, we're humans. What do we do? We solve problems. We've got problems at the moment, and we can solve them. So I don't. I'm not really pessimistic about that. World population's gonna gonna flatten out. So I don't think that's the major issue. I think that the important thing is to really make what agriculture we have really efficient, so that we can return areas that are not efficient to the natural environment. Well, Professor, thank you very much for being on the program. Really appreciate your insights this morning and I appreciate you telling us about your research. Good. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Professor Rosalind Gledo with us there from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University, also the president of the Global Plant Council. The Mitchell's Front Page Podcast is brought to you by Geelong Bank. Listen live on 94.7 The Pulse, Mondays and Tuesdays from 9 to 11. Or search for Mitchell's front page on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or wherever you get your podcasts.